Since we are going to be baptizing uh, this morning, I'm going to take a little break from Romans for today, and we are going to have a sermon regarding baptism. So we're looking forward to that. And once again, I just really want to encourage all of you, please take that time. If if it's at all possible, I don't want to guilt you. I almost want to guilt you into it, but I won't. I'll refrain from that. But it's just so important as the body of believers to have that public witness and that support of God's people. Um, so as Luke mentioned, we are going to be caravanning from here after this service over to Jesus Fellowship, who graciously allows us to use their baptismal uh, for these occasions. So uh, Micah, Alyssa, and Mikey Moss will be baptized this morning. Um, right, one more announcement in, in return in regards to Mikey and Leela. We are so blessed. Not only are we baptizing Mikey, but Laura and I are um, pleased to announce the engagement of Leela and Mikey. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a blessed day all the way around. We are so thankful. Um, I'm not getting through this. A couple weeks overdue, but they didn't have to know that. <laughs> oh, so we are so blessed in that. All right. Well, let's turn our attention to the reading of the word. I'm going to ask you to please turn with me your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53. And this will be our Old Testament reading, and then we will go over to Acts chapter 8 for our New Testament reading, down to the water. Isaiah 53, this is God's word. Who has believed what we, what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and he was rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken and tra- stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with many. 
And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for transgressors. Amen and praise God. Now let's turn to Acts chapter 8. And this is Philip and his encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch. Acts chapter 8 beginning in verse 26. Oh, I love hearing the pages turn. Let's turn pages. That's good. Not all of you are on your iPad or phone. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. Now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court of the... Of the uh, official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning, seething in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to him, said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and he asked do you understand what you're reading and he said how can i how can i unless someone guides me and he invited philip to come up and sit with him now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this like sheep like a sheep he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shears is silent he opens not his mouth and his humiliation and justice was denied him who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news of Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. And I'm going to end the reading right there this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you for your precious word, for our life in Jesus Christ, for your power, Lord God, to save, to sanctify, Lord to bless your people, to give us your spirit, Lord, that we may do your will and seek to obey you. And I just pray, Lord, through the preaching of this word this morning, that you would be honored and glorified, that really we would be edified and encouraged, Lord God, to bring forth your word with all power, relying on your spirit, never being ashamed of the gospel, never being afraid to bring forth your precious word, Lord God, for it is an instrument in your hand, Lord. So please bless this message to your glory and for our good. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What an amazing, joyous event, isn't it? Just this whole, this whole encounter, this whole event, just amazing, joyful. And we get kind of a little peek behind the curtain because we see the spirit, uh, telling Philip where he needed to go and who he needed to meet. So that's, that's kind of cool as the curtains pulled back. 
In other words, we see what we've been talking about in Romans. We see God's sovereign grace really on display. He has his people. He has his elect, and they will be brought to him. No doubt about that. Primarily through the preaching of the word. So we see the privilege of evangelism that the Lord gives to us. It shouldn't be a burden for us to evangelize. Now, sometimes, obviously, it takes a long time. We might not even see the fruit in our lifetime. That's up to the Lord and his sovereign grace. But we are to witness. We are to take time. Sometimes it takes months. Sometimes it takes years. And although in our uh, account today, it's years in the making, it takes that one conversation. And isn't that amazing if you've ever been used by the Lord in his sovereign grace to have that one conversation that brings a person to him. That's truly humbling, isn't it? It's truly amazing. That's what's happening here today. Such a blessing when you have that conversion. So, so we have this morning is the conversion of a lost sinner who has come to Christ, the act of joyful obedience as he receives baptism as a sign and a seal of God's covenant of grace that he belongs to him. So verses 26 through 29, we're told the angel of the Lord told Philip, rise, go to the south, the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza, desert place. He rose and he went. There was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, the court of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship the spirit said to philip go over and join that chariot now wouldn't that be nice if we had that uh direction from the lord even that revelation from the lord go here's the he's sent to the right place at the right time and to the right person it doesn't always work that way for us obviously as you know but the lord does work through us to bring his people to faith so oftentimes many times you have a burden for a certain person and that just might be at any time. And there's times when I'm studying and I see somebody at, at the mall and I don't know, it's just a burden on me to be praying for that person and sometimes even to be bold enough and go up to that person and speak to them, right? And so he does give us that, doesn't he? That, that burden for people in our lives to pray for them, to have conversations with them, to witness to them. Other times you'll be in a conversation with the person and they'll actually start listening. They'll ask questions about faith and so on and so forth. You get into a discussion about that. You get to share. You get to explain the gospel of Christ. So what we need to be, like Philip, a willing instrument in the hand of our Lord. Don't be inconvenienced, please. Don't be put out. Don't get defeated when you're witnessing and people don't come to faith right away. Philip went. That's the first thing I want you to say. He went. He didn't say, oh, Lord, this is inconvenient. I don't want to go right now. No, he got up and he went. The Ethiopian eunuch, he was in the uh, court. He was a court official in Candace's court. Now, this person would have had status for sure at that time. Prestige, privilege. He would be highly regarded, you know, he would, he would have been considered successful by every definition, every worldly definition anyway, being responsible for all of her treasure. And he was really in a high position, a lot of responsibility. But obviously, obviously, from his, on his side, something was missing in his life. All of this, everything that he had, all the prestige, all the power, all the privilege, just wasn't enough to satisfy, and it never will be enough to satisfy. It doesn't matter what you have, what you possess, how far you come in this life. You may make it, right? By all worldly standards, you may make it, but 
You cannot shake that nagging feeling. And some of you know this. Before you came to Christ, no matter how successful you were, how popular you were, how much you had, how much you were doing, there was always that something that was just nagging. Even though we suppressed that truth and unrighteousness, even though we could be satisfied for a while with the things of this world, it's never enough. And there's always kind of that something that's missing in our lives. Well, that something obviously is actually someone. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. But oftentimes what we do is just kind of move on, like build bigger barns. Maybe if I have more of something, then I'll be happier and I'll be more content or, you know, just that's kind of my hope. Or even if you make it, you're very successful. And you see this with so many of the popular people in our world today, the influencers, the the Hollywood stars, all those people, they're still missing something. They get that pinnacle of worldly success and they're still empty inside. So what do they do? They turn to spirituality. So you have like Oprah, you have all these people. I'm turning into spirituality. I'm looking to something more for my life because they know that something is missing. He was a man of prominence, but that's not enough and it'll never be enough. Success cannot save you. Amen? Praise God. Verses 27, 28, he goes on. Again, he was in the court of Candace. He was returning, seated in his chariot. He was reading the prophet Isaiah. So from this we know he was at the festival. He was on his way back. We also know he's a religious person. Besides being very successful, he was a religious person. He was on that pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Now he's returning back from that. He was reading scripture. He would be what's called a God-fearer. Right? He had a lot of respect. He would be devout. He would have been sincere, a lot like Lydia in the book of Acts. Um, mostly a kind person. You could see his enthusiasm. He was an enthusiastic kind of guy, kind, out there, to, you know, like a wonderful person, the person you'd like to know, a good friend to have, most sincere, most devout. But listen to this. As, as, he was as devout as you can as that, as far as that could get you, you know, being sincere, as far as that gets you. But listen to this, and you need to understand, the most sincere person, the most devout person, the nicest person you know, and I know you know nice people, that kind neighbor that does anything for you, right? That person that comes alongside you, that takes time with you. Kind person, nice person, wonderful person, by any definition. At some point, at some point, they will object and subsequently reject the demands of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what you have to understand, because we have a tendency to say, well, that person's so nice. They, there has to be a place for them in heaven. They're just so kind. They're just wonderful people. At some point, those kind, wonderful, nice people are going to push back against the gospel of Christ. I don't care how nice they are, how wonderful they are. The demands of the gospel will cause them to reject Christ at some point. Go ahead. Talk to the nicest person you know. It's not a Christian, wonderful person. And talk to them about their sin. Tell them that they're a sinner, according to scripture. That Oftentimes, that's enough to get some pushback from them. Me, a sinner? I remember preaching a sermon one time, my cousin, not a believer, was at the at the service that day, speaking about us being sinners, needing to be saved by grace. After the service, he was a little offended at me. He said, damn, you called me a sinner. I know I'm not a perfect person, but a sinner. That's that's kind of that's kind of rough. See that that pushback, that that you know, talk about issues that comes through as well. There'll be people, hey, I am pro-life. I do believe in life. I would never get an abortion, I would never advocate for abortion, but in certain circumstances, if that needs to take place, then I'm, you know, that person's making their choice and I'll support. See, there's always a limit 
to the, if you're not a Christian, to the kindest, nicest, most understanding person, they will reject the demands of the gospel. Who is the quintessential example of this in Scripture? Can you think of that person? I'll give you a hint. He was rich, he was young, and he was a ruler. <laughs> Turn with me to, to Luke chapter 18, because this is what it is. And this is kind of the Ethiopian, so nice, so kind, so wonderful. I love the rich young ruler. He was a sincere man from his heart. And most believe that he was eventually converted. But at this time, if you look at Luke chapter 18, we see this. Nice man, enthusiastic young man, sincere young man, come before Jesus Christ. Luke 18, beginning in verse 18. And the rich young ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, and he wasn't being arrogant, he wasn't being rude, he wasn't being cocky, he wasn't being you know, inflated with self-esteem. He just said, all these I've done, I've done these from my youth. And he did, he probably did, he loved his parents, he would have been nice in this way. The nicest guy you could know, guy, guy you would admire. All these I've done. From my youth, I've kept them from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, here's the demand of the gospel. Here's that one place with the nicest, kindest person. Mm, I'm not going to go that far because he can't because of our sin nature. So he says, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Oh, but when he heard these things, he became very sad because he was extremely rich. And there it is. And there's the rub. That's what I'm talking about when I say, no matter how nice, how kind, how wonderful that person is, if you're not, there's going to be that point. There's going to be that place where you say, hmm, the demands of that's too much. That's too much. And so we see this here. When he heard this, he became sad. He was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom. See, that's what's going on here. The demands of the gospel. So when we're tempted to say that about the nicest, kindest person, that's wonderful. That person, they're nicer than most Christians I know. They very well may be in certain ways, but apart from Jesus Christ, they will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Understand that. Please mark that down in your in your heart. The rich young ruler, he was unwilling to give himself fully to the Lord to fully own his sin, to acknowledge his need. But like I said earlier, he couldn't do that. Some, something must bridge that gap. And what bridges that gap is the, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what bridges the gap. Just like with Lydia. She was a God-fearer, just like the Ethiopian eunuch. She had great respect for the God of the Israelites. She would read, as a matter do we have Acts? Do I have that passage written down? The one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. She was a worshiper of God, seen as a worshiper of God, kind, beautiful woman, no doubt. We see that, especially after her conversion. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. That's the thing. That's what's needed. And that's what we pray for as we speak, as we bring forth the gospel. Pray that the Lord opens up the heart because that's when the understanding comes. That's when the change takes place. The Lord opened our heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul after 
and after she was baptized in obedience, her and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So you see the beautiful picture of the gospel being preached, being sealed in baptism, and then that outworking of the faith, what's mine is yours. Everything I have as a Christian belongs to you. You come to my house. And they were probably saying, no, it's okay. No, no, no. She prevailed upon them. You're coming to my house. Amen. Praise God. So we see that what's missing is that bridge that needs to be gapped is the work of the Holy Spirit. Being merely religious, ultimately, that depends on your works, and it cannot save you. I'm telling you, right, that's exactly what Scripture teaches. The reality is that there are only two religions or ways in this world. It's either, and you saw, there's so many religions out there. No, 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 no. There's either man's way, where it's you doing something, something, no matter what it is, no matter how small it may be, but you do something in order to earn favor. Or you do not do certain things in order to gain favor, right? It's something that you do or do not do that gives you favor. Only Christianity is grounded in grace where you can do nothing to save yourself. Do you understand that? That's the, that's the, that's a teaching of scripture. That's the only way. So if you ask an Orthodox Jew today, you think you'll go to heaven? He might say, well, I hope to go to paradise. And then you say, well, how will that happen? How will that take place? And you'll get an answer something like this. Well, I love the Torah. I read the Torah. Does it sound familiar? Like Paul, I memorize the Torah. I, I practice my religion. I pray. I go to church three times a week or service synagogue three times a week. I fast. I read. I keep, I keep the feast. I, 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 I try, I put my faith into practice. You see? And there's the hope that God will see that and be pleased enough to bring me to paradise. Ask a Muslim the same question. Think you'll be in paradise? Well, perhaps. We don't know. Allah knows. But on what basis would you be there? Ask the Muslim. What are they going to say? Well, I love the Quran. I read the Quran every day. I practice my religion. The five pillars of faith. I pray. I read. I pray, pray three times a day. I attend services. I go on pilgrimages. They try to earn. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You could choose any religion. All, it's always something that you do. It's only Christianity. Ask a Christian. Ask a true Christian. Are you going to heaven? True Christian is going to say yes. On what basis? On the basis of Jesus shed blood alone. Because I know that I'm a sinner by nature and by choice. I know that I deserve only judgment from God. Yet Jesus Christ lived the life I could not live. He died the death I deserved to die. He was raised on the third day. And only through faith in him am I made worthy to be in heaven. That's an answer from the Christian. No virtue of mine, no merit of mine, nothing I did, nothing I can do. By grace alone, his righteousness, no righteousness on my own. It's outside of myself. Understand? That's the answer to the Christian. That's the only religion in the world, the only way, the only philosophy that doesn't depend on man at all. It's Christianity. And beloved, that's what we have. And we have the hope. And that's what Philip had. So no mere, even sincere religion, knowledge without understanding is not enough. Because it's always backwards. It's my works that leads to faith, hopefully, and what I do as a man that gets me to God. Christianity's the opposite of that. So, look at verses 30 through um, 35. So, Philip ran, ran to him, and he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. 
do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading is this, like a sheep that was led to slaughter, like a lamb before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth, and his humiliation and justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And he goes on. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this, about himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, beginning with a scripture. He told him the good news about Jesus. That's where it all takes place. This is beautiful right here. Three things out of these passages I want you to see in regards to evangelism, God's work, and in uh, the sinner's life. What did Philip do when he was told to, when he saw the chariot? He ran. That's very descriptive. That's beautiful. There's that urgency. We don't have urgency these days. We're, we're, we like run away almost. We're, we're very, um, I don't know, we're too afraid. We don't want to speak our faith. Uh, Philip, he ran over to him. That shows that enthusiasm, That how desperate he wanted to, to be with him. He runs over to him, and then he sits down with him. So that, that running, that urgency, that enthusiasm, he didn't just walk over casually. He didn't say, oh man, should I go? I don't know. What do I? He ran to that chariot and he engaged. Right? He sat down with him. And these two things demonstrate something that's very important. They demonstrate a true love for the lost. Do you have a true love for the lost? See, that's the th- we get, so often we get frustrated. We get angry. We lose our patience with those that are lost. And, and oh, you know what? Just you're, you get what you deserve kind of thing. No, 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 no. That's wrong. That's wrong. We must always have love for the lost. That We were in that place at one time. And if somebody didn't love on us with the gospel of Christ, well, they would because he's sovereignly decreed it. But we're thankful for that, that they did that for us, that they didn't lose patience with us. They didn't walk away from us but they continue to witness to us. So there needs to be a true love, and people need to know that you respect them and love them. And if they know that, they'll listen to you speak, even if they reject you, even if they are hating you. If we come with that love of image bearers of God, understanding what they need, somewhere in their heart, intuitively, they're going to know that even as they reject us. Okay? So remember that, that love for them. He ran up to him. So there's that love. He, he, he was hurrying up. We need to hurry up to tell people about the gospel, but then we need to take our time and explain it. Notice, he ran to him, but then he sat down with him. He didn't just stand there and talk to him for a while. He went up and he sat down. And that means he was willing to do whatever it would take to, to explain the gospel to him. So we need to hurry up and tell people about Christ, but then we need to take our time and sit down as we explain these things. And that shows the love of Christ for the lost. And then notice what also, he's beginning with the scripture. Man, we, we put the scripture away. We try to reason or, you know, kind of skirt along the edges with it. Let the word do its work. It is living and active. It's powerful. We're called to be faithful and preach it and let people know without Jesus Christ, we're lost. Without Jesus Christ, we're under judgment. We are sinners that deserve wrath. But here's the good news. Here's what Jesus Christ has done. And here's the offer of the gospel. Let the word speak. Go to the passages. Here's what the Bible actually says about us. I mean, oftentimes in our conversations, it's like pulling teeth for us to get to actually preach the scripture, teach, even say it, let alone turn to the Bible itself. But he began with the scripture. Do this. 
It's living and active. The Spirit's going to do the work through His Word. And so he's Isaiah. He's preaching Isaiah. And this is the heart of the gospel. If you want to go back to Isaiah, some 700 years before the incarnation of Christ, the time of Jesus, and here's this wonderful prophecy, and it really contains the gospel itself. Um, I'll never forget one one time early in my ministry, I was doing counseling. The wife was a professing Christian. The husband was Jewish. And they were in my office. And I didn't tell the husband where I was reading from. I was reading from Isaiah 53. And he said, listen, I don't believe in the New Testament. You can't preach from the New Testament. I said, I'm not. I'm preaching from your most famous prophet, Isaiah. Right? Isaiah 53. That shook him a little bit. I never knew what happened, like if he came to faith or not, but at that point he was really shocked and surprised. That's, that's not New Testament. No, I said that is the Old Testament looking forward to Jesus Christ because it explains everything, doesn't it? Every, it has the gospel encapsulated in Isaiah 53. So this is what Philip was explaining to the Ethiopian eunuch as the Holy Spirit was working through his word. There it is. What's the problem? Isaiah 53. Um, Look at 6, 6a. He says this, all of us like sheep have gone astray, have turned, and we have turned everyone to his own way. That's the problem. We like sheep have gone astray. We're not following God. We're against him. Romans 3.23 tells us this, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way. You don't want to Obey and listen to what God actually has to say. Again, you will to a point until you're not comfortable anymore, uncomfortable with it, and then you're going to reject that. Like you'll follow God insofar as you see fit, and you're not going to see yourself as a sinner in need of a Savior. But there's the problem. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. The penalty is implied throughout Isaiah 53. It's just there that we deserve judgment. So I, Romans 6.23 tells us, for the wages of sin is death. That's what is implied in Isaiah 53. That's what we deserve and confirmed in the New Testament. What's the provision? What's the hope? Well, it's Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, 1-3 says, Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look on him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not." That is the provision that God made. He sent forth his son. John 3.16 tells us this. I hope you see the connective tissue between Isaiah 53.1 and 3 and John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. This is the one who came, was rejected, yet is the savior of the world. So he makes that provision. And then, of course, the price that he pays, Isaiah uh, Four verses four and five. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Then verses seven through nine. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to slaughter, like a sheep that's before its ears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for our transgressions of my 
people. So we see that the Lord, the price that he would pay, that he would be stricken, that he would take upon himself the sins of his people, that he was the redeemer. And there it is, by his wounds you are healed. 700 years before Christ, of course, we know in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in, in him we might become the righteousness of God. Mark 9.22 tells us this. Mark 9.22? Okay, that he, that he died on the cross for our sins. That's what we are told in Mark 9.22. Jesus said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be mistreated. I'm going to be killed. And I'm going to raise on the, be raised on the third day. So he's telling them the gospel there. I'm sorry, Luke 9.22. Okay, there it is. I was right. I just said Mark. I'm not, I didn't mean Luke. I should have been. The son of man may suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes, be killed, and on that third day be raised. Goes right back to Isaiah 53. So we have that. We have the problem that we're sinners. We have the penalty, which is of God's judgment. We have the provision, and that is God sending forth his son. We have the price that's paid, that he would be uh, pierced for our transgressions, that he would be put to death for sin in that way. And then we even have the proof, and that's the resurrection. Isaiah 53, 10 and 11 allude to this. It says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. And here it is. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquity. So there's that, that hope of, there's a, really the, the allusion to the, to the resurrection of Christ. When he rendered himself a guilt offering that would bring, make many righteous, three things happen. He will see his offspring. That means he's alive. He will live forever. That's prolonging his days. That's a sense of living, going to eternity. And he will see and be satisfied. He is not dead. He is the living Savior. The promise, again, that many will be accounted as righteous who believe in him. Romans 10, 9 and 10 tell us this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Isaiah 53, the gospel encapsulated. There it is. This eunuch went from worldliness, like many of you, to religion, like many of you, to true salvation in Jesus Christ. Amen. Praise God. He's excited. He's happy. And then what does he want to do? Right after that, there is the, the, he just, what's preventing him from being baptized? Look at verses 36 through 39 back in Luke chapter 8. 36 through 39, he says this. As they were going along the road, they came to some water. The eunuch said to him, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. And this is it. So there's that salvation, that first 
act of faithful obedience enthusiastically is to be baptized, identifying with Jesus Christ. I want the world to see that I belong to him, the change that he's made in me. He asked the question, what prevents me from being baptized? What's the answer to that? Nothing prevents you from being baptized. You made a faithful profession in Jesus Christ. The next step is baptism, showing that you belong to him. Following the prescription of Jesus Christ. What did Christ say? Go make disciples of all nations, including in making disciples, is obviously starting with the gospel itself, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's the formula. What's the pattern? We see that. Read through the book of Acts. Paul was converted, then baptized. Lydia, same thing. The Philippian jailer, Crispus. You can go through the book of Acts. There's that conversion and then being baptized. What must we do? Repent, believe, and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And they went down into the water, down into the water, down to the river, over to Jesus Fellowship to be baptized here in just a little bit. Now listen, down into the water, and here's an important distinction. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by the Holy Spirit that regenerates us. Baptism is an ordinance. It is vitally important. It is a command. We do that willingly. We don't just put that off and say, oh, well, I'm really saved. I don't. No, no. You need to be baptized. It's an important witness. It says so much about your faith. But never confuse. And here's where a lot of confusion comes along in the world of Christendom. You don't get baptized in order to be regenerated. It does not save you. That's a big, big deal. It is not efficacious. The waters don't don't change your actual heart. That's the work of the Holy Spirit at regeneration. You're not infused. I was raised Roman Catholic, and so in the Roman Catholic faith, this is one of the big disagreements that we have. One of the points of contention is how is one converted? How is one saved? Well, being raised Roman Catholic, how was one saved if you were raised? At baptism. That's called our christening, right? That's that's a big, big deal because that is when through the ceremony, through the service itself, where we receive, allegedly, receive the infused grace of Christ into our lives which make us Christian. And then the rest of our life is working out that salvation in that way, right? Justification and sanctification. That's not the teaching of Scripture. They're converted, and then they go to the water. It doesn't save us. You're not saved by the waters of baptism. It doesn't complete our salvation. There are Protestant churches. The Church of Christ basically believe that it's efficacious as well, that after you make a profession of faith, that's not enough. If you die without being baptized after making a profession of faith, you may not go to heaven because they believe that it completes your salvation as well. No. No, our salvation is complete in Christ as he changes our heart. Baptism is that outward picture of the inward reality. That demonstrates what God has done in us. That you have been washed, that you've been cleansed, that you've been forgiven of your sin, that you willingly belong to Christ, that you willingly die to yourself in order to live for Christ in newness of life as a Christian, that we are united to Christ. So Colossians 2, 11 and 12 In him also, when you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, that's regeneration, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And there's a picture of baptism, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. See, it's that that outward picture of the inward reality. It means the power of sin is broken. It no longer has 
a claim on you. Those, those chains are gone. You're free to live for him. It's a picture of that in Romans. And I'll just um, turn to Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So we're baptized into his death. The sin doesn't reign over us. Our baptism shows not only that we belong to Jesus, but that we together belong to him, and therefore we belong to each other as well. That's a big sign of our baptism, that we belong not only to Christ, but we belong to each other as well. Galatians 3, 26, 29 says this, For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith, all of you. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And then John 13, 34 and 35 tells us, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I loved you. You also love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. So our baptism speaks to all of us. It's not just individual. It, there's a sense of that, but it's bigger than that. It's corporate as well. All of us have been baptized, right? And and show that we belong to Jesus Christ. We've been forgiven of sins. We're united to him. But it also means that we're united to each other. It's kind of a symbol of that bond that we have to each other as well. That we love each other. That we care for each other. That we pray for each other. That we come alongside. That we encourage. That we rebuke when we need to rebuke because we love each other that much. What belongs to me belongs to you. We've been baptized into the Lord Jesus Christ. It shows that we're saved in that way. We live no longer just for ourselves, but for Christ and then also for one another. Do you understand that? Baptism symbols all of these things. So we see him rejoicing. Told him, told that he went on his way rejoicing. Amen. And we should rejoice in our salvation, that we've been baptized, that the joy of the Lord is our strength. No matter what, we have Jesus Christ. Why wouldn't he rejoice? A life of prestige, privilege, comfort cannot, will not satisfy. No matter how much you have, no matter how popular you are, no matter how people love you, it's not going to be enough. Mere religion did not give him and could not give him what he needed, what God requires. Religion can't satisfy or solve your real dilemma because here's your real dilemma, beloved, apart from Jesus Christ. Your sin has separated you from God. And this can only be remedied by Jesus Christ through grace. You can't remedy that problem by what you do. It's only in Christ alone. He realized that. So he's rejoicing. He's going away rejoicing. The eunuch found out these things about Christ and it changed everything for him. If you're in Jesus Christ, everything changes for you in your life. You rejoice because you know that you're a sinner saved by grace. That's it. Not anything that you do. You could say, yes, I'm a sinner. I deserve hell. I deserve punishment. But God has seen fit to save me. We rejoice in that. He could rejoice in that he understood that all that he did, all that he had, wasn't enough, but Jesus Christ is all that you need. That's such a relief, isn't it? When you're trying to work, like, how much do I have to do? What more? How good? How much better? Trying harder? Doing this? No, 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 no. I rest in Jesus Christ alone. 
he has saved me. Rejoicing because his life will never be the same. If you're in Jesus Christ, your life will never be the same as it was before you were converted in him. And you have trouble, toil, sorrows to be sure, but nothing can take that joy away because now you have meaning in your life. You know who you're living for. You have purpose in your life. And everything that happens in your life, you know in his sovereign providence happens for a particular reason. Even though we might know that, not know that reason at that particular time, we know as we sang that he is sovereign over all of that. Our identity is in Jesus Christ, not in ourselves. It doesn't matter what people think of us. It doesn't matter about our self-esteem or how wonderful we think we have to be. We know who we are in Christ and that's enough. And that's what we need because if you're living faithfully, you will be rejected by the world. Right? We know who we are in Christ. He went away rejoicing because as a Christian, we know that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And he went away rejoicing because one day he knew that he would stand in the presence of his Savior, forever praising, forever rejoicing, along with all of the saints. Why shouldn't we be rejoicing? No matter what, come what may in our lives, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, to know him, to be in him, means everything. So that salvation, that evangelism, coming to know Christ, being converted, being baptized, our baptism speaks to all of these things. So as we get ready to head over to Jesus Fellowship for baptism, keep these things in mind. Be reminded of your first love, right? When you first were saved and how much you loved Christ and you couldn't wait and you weren't ashamed. You weren't ashamed to be baptized. You were telling the world, I belong to Jesus Christ. I am his. Is that still true for you today, Christian? When we feel more jaded and, you know, it's been a hard road for us and it's not what we thought. No, 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 no. Go back to your first love. Don't forget about how you were transformed and what that meant and what that looked like and how much devotion and how much love and how much boldness you had for Jesus Christ. And you remember that even when you were baptized because there were people around you and you made your profession and you weren't ashamed, but you loved the world to see that you're no longer your own, but you belong to him.